Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate 310 Real Estate Practice. Today happens to be show number 26 and what I'm going to be doing today is sort of, for lack of a better word, a course review. We've gone through a lot of chapters. The last show that we did, which was show, um, show 25, we discussed different other kinds of ways that you can make a living in real estate besides selling just residential real estate. We talked about selling business opportunities, we talked about mortgages, we talked about uh, being a notary, we talked about selling manufactured homes, we talked about selling mobile homes. So we talked about a lot of other activities you can do once you have a real estate license, if you will, to generate income or to add to your existing real estate practice. Today what I'd like to do is take some time because we have our second exam coming up here very shortly. I recommend that, highly recommend that you check the uh, course outline for the exam date and location, very, very important, but it's coming up here very shortly. And what I want to do is kind of go up and review, take a review of the course, where we began and up to where we are about now, and discuss some of the highlights with you, sharing some of that knowledge. And maybe if you hear it again, it'll help you remember or see things differently after you've read some of the other chapters. And I'm going to start right at the beginning, which happens to be Chapter 1. And uh, what I would recommend is in the next, uh, you know, half a minute or so, if you have your textbook with you, just open it up to Chapter Number 1. And uh, uh, actually what I'm going to be doing is just the actual outline that's in the table of contents to just talk about some of the topics. And then, if you will, you could write some notes down next to it, and uh, we can follow along with what's going on. I'm going to be displaying the uh, table of contents on my document camera, so I will be back and forth between talking directly to you and kind of moving the old pencil around here on the document camera. So just I'm going to move over here for a minute, point out a couple things. The first thing that we're going to be talking about is something called the salesperson. And the reason why that that is important is because before we ever get started in doing any kind of real estate practice at all, we want to talk about the people that actually, which is what you're training to do, is to, the people that actually move or sell property. In other words, the people that are out there every day in the trenches, the salespeople that are selling the property. So we want to talk about that particular topic area and some of the things that you need to think about when you're actually deciding to go into real estate. Now the first thing that I'm going to do, and then I'm going to come back up here on camera in a minute, is that you need to get the support of your family. And let me just talk about that a little bit. When you go into the real estate profession, you are in reality going into your own business. Even so, your business card may say Colwell Banker, Lion Realtors, RE Max, Keller Williams, Century 21, whatever it happens to say, it's still your own business. So one of the things that you really need to do is sit down with your family, whether you're doing this on a part-time or a full-time basis, and get their support. Uh, there might be in the beginning, and, and for a lot of people, there might be an issue of income, because if, especially if you're entering the profession on a full-time basis, you may have to work, no matter how hard you may work, you're probably going to go three to four months before you probably receive your first commission check and that is if everything hits right on the clock right on time so it's going to be a time in which you're going to have to be maybe having some savings put away some money put aside that you can take care of your living expenses while you're out there learning the business and actually making your first couple sales so that becomes very important also like any business, any business person would tell you, when you enter into your own business, one of the things that happens is you're going to be spending a lot of time doing it. If you're working a normal job right now, you're going to be finding out, and you're working maybe 30 or 40 hours a week, you may find yourself working 50, 60, or 70 hours a week in the beginning. Some of that is just because you're just trying to learn the business. You're trying to learn the ropes. In the beginning, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to go out to visit a client. You're going to bring the wrong forms with you. You're going to have to drive back to the office, make another appointment. You know, there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to be learning during that period of time. Sp probably spending a lot of time with your real estate broker going over some topics that you may not understand right away. So it's like any other profession. You're going to be spending a lot of time. When you do that, it's going to be taking time away from your family. So your family, 
will have to have some form of an understanding that you're going to be maybe working Saturdays, Sundays, evenings, uh, weekends uh, in order to initially build your business. So getting their support becomes very important. Even if you're working part-time, you're going to find out that once you start working part-time in this, you're still going to be maybe working weekends and evenings. So you need to have the support of your family. Very, very important. The second thing that the top that topic is covered in the book is something about, it says, brokers know when you pass your salesperson's exam. This is a question I get from a lot of times from people. They say, how do I even go about getting into the profession? Who do I talk to? Where do I start? The th my answer to that is, is that if you are probably uh, can have access to uh, the Sacramento Bee, which is one of our local newspapers, and look in the employment section under real estate or sales opportunities under real estate, you're going to see lots of advertisements for job opportunities, sales opportunities with real estate firms. Many of these real estate firms will have things such as career night, open house night, times that you can go by and visit with them, see what kind of, how their office is organized, listen to their, maybe the owner of the company discuss, you know, how, you know, what their philosophy is, where their clients come from. You'd have a chance to meet the different uh, managers that are with the company and also probably meet with some of the agents. So that's one of the ways that you can meet. Also, just calling on those advertisements and asking for an interview. The one thing that I think the book stresses that's kind of important is that when you do apply for or pass your exam, you are going to get a lot of solicitations from real estate agents and mortgage bankers and brokers looking to find out if you want to come into the, uh, work for them. Uh, don't be surprised if that happens. That happens to end up being public information that you at least applied. And a lot of companies will uh, purchase that list or acquire that list and send you out and say, listen, if you're interested in, in you know, becoming a real estate salesperson, come on down and talk to me. So that's another way that you can find out about job opportunities. The next thing that we mentioned in there is that you're going to have, once you meet with a broker, remember, it's like most things, I don't know whoever came up with this, but whenever you're going to have, look into any kind of occupation or job of any kind, you're going to probably going to want to interview with more than one company. I highly recommend that you would interview with at least three, uh, three that you've spent some time choosing well. Don't get into what we commonly refer to as an, uh, paralysis of analysis. In other words, where you're going out and interviewing 15 and 20 different brokerages and not coming to a decision. Uh, when you do the business plan, part of that concept of the business plan is that you're going out and figuring out where it is that you want to work, what kind of real estate you want to sell, and where those companies in that area are located and who they happen to be. I would recommend that that would be a good way to figure out which company you would actually want to sit down and spend some time interviewing. And I would say three, three well-chosen, not just at random, but three well-chosen that you've done some research about the company before you ever go to the interview. Very, very important. Next issue that people will ask is, should I work for a large company or a small company? Again, that's a personal philosophy. Uh, if you're going to work for a large company, uh, the larger companies like the Colwell Bankers, the uh, Lion uh, & Associates, uh, the Keller Williams, you're going to find out that they have enough agents and enough business that they can hire full-time training people, people to do classroom training and on-the-job training with you. Uh, that can be a very good benefit to you, especially if you feel that it's really necessary that you have that uh, training to help you transition from the classroom to the day-to-day -day activities of real estate agent. Remember, the training that you're having here, a lot of it is, is academic training, it's philosophical training, it's things to help you understand the business and how it operates. But I cannot say enough for those training programs that real estate companies and brokerages have for their new agents. In fact, I know of one company, Keller Williams, that uh, we do our internship with that has ongoing training all the time for all of their agents. So it's a very, very important activity that you may want to look at. That would be why you'd want to go with a large company. There are also medium companies and small companies. Remember, small companies would be a company that you would want to go to work for that would be um, maybe it's one, two, or three people in the office. And because of the fact that they are a small office and they chose you well and you chose them well, they're going to spend a lot of time helping to mentor you and helping you along. And if you find the right mix, that can really work well for your career. So you kind of want to look at both ends of it. Uh, the next thing that they talked about, just to go back a little bit here, is they talked about uh, 
Uh, one thing that, that I did want to mention is remember that when you do work for a real estate company, you are an independent contractor. You are not um, an employee. In most cases of a general brokerage, you're not an employee. You happen to be a independent contractor. You're going to file your own income taxes. You have to usually provide your own health insurance, your own disability insurance, your own life insurance, and you also have to file your own income taxes, including the fact of putting, um, I'm trying to think of the correct term now, but it's your quarterly estimates of what you're going to make. So in other words, remember, you're, that's the kind of person you're going to be. You're going to be in your own business. Planning activities, these were just talking basically about some of the things that you're really going to need about when you're talking about planning your business. Remember, you're thinking about planning your business, not Coel Banker's business, but your business. Uh, the reason why people are going to buy real estate is because you have developed a relationship with that person. Uh, most people, when they get ready to buy or sell anything, they normally will buy or sell with that person because they have created some form of trusting, bonding, if you will, relationship with them. They feel that the salesperson understands them better than some other salespeople do. They can connect with them better. A couple of things that you want to remember when you initially start in the business come in the terms that, we're going to, that they talk about in that chapter is one is fear, what we call sphere of influence. Sphere of influence basically means in planning your business, we're talking about the fact that what you're going to be doing is looking at all of those people that you meet on a daily basis. In other words, your dentist, your doctor, your friends, your relatives, uh, your next door neighbor, whatever. These are the people that are going to help you jumpstart or get your business going. What's going to be important is that you contact and talk to those people, email them, let them know that you're in the business and that you've passed your exam and that you're ready, willing, and able to help them. Those people are the people that can help you get started in the business. Some of the other things that they talked about in that chapter, and I'm going to come back and talk to you um, uh, up here, is something called um, your daily activity schedule. Remember that you are your own boss that has a double-edged sword. You know, on one hand, you can decide that, hey, I want to go to the beach and swim all day. On the other hand, while you do that and you made that decision, you're not able to generate in, any income doing that. So you are going to be responsible for figuring out what your daily schedule or activities are going to be. Some of the other thing that you're going to have to build into there, and I'm just going to kind of use this as a checklist, is something called soliciting. Remember that you're going to have to be soliciting new business. You're always going to be in the business of soliciting new customers. Uh, in fact, this morning uh, I was watching the Today Show and they had uh, a performer on there by the name of Elton John. And uh, it just dawned on me this morning while I was watching that show is I've seen him on a lot of other shows. And he's been around for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years as a performer. And still to this day, he is going out and making sure that he is giving some kind of uh, uh, playing some free music, if you will, contacting people uh, all of you, uh, and letting them know that he's still alive so that he can keep having people come back and watch his show. So the point is, is that any kind of person that's in a business is always going to be in the process of always soliciting new business, and that's the concept that you want to kind of get into. They talked about something in there, too, called previewing and showing property. Previewing means don't ever show a client any properties without actually having taken a look at them yourself. And that also, too, in that area, they talked about the fact that you really want to become an expert in the area that you decide to practice real estate. So if it happens to be that you're going to be selling uh, residential homes in the Greenhaven area, you want to be the person, the go-to guy or gal that knows everything that everybody needs to know about real estate in that area. It becomes very important. A couple things they talk about is, is uh, they talk about the fact of what are some of the attributes of people that are successful in real estate. You know, I've met a lot of them. I've known a lot of them. I mean, very, very highly successful people. And you know what? I find out there's really no secrets. Most of these people that I've ever met, there's no magic. They usually, they're not necessarily way above average. They sometimes are very average. The couple things that they have in common is, number one, they really love the business. They like the real estate business. They really enjoy it. They look forward to getting up every morning and going out and practicing real estate. The second thing is, is that they just happen to be hard workers. I mean, if they don't know anything, they just keep working at it until they manage to figure out how to do something. The, so they're tenacious. They're well organized. They keep themselves up to speed on what the new financing programs are, what's for sale on the market. They tour a lot of homes. 
they make themselves the expert. And they sell a lot of real estate. And the reason why is, I think, because they have those attributes. There is no magic bullet. There's no silver bullet. I mean, there's nothing to take the place of just hard work, tenaciousness, and the idea that you like what you're doing to be successful. Why does, then the other part that I like in here is why do salespeople fail? Well, they fail because they don't do any of those things that successful people do. Um, basically, take a look at what a successful people, a person does in real estate and do just the opposite. That's what we find out people have failed do. You know, they, 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 get, uh, they, they let people talk them out of the fact to say, you know, the market really isn't doing that well today. Uh, therefore, I think that uh, I shouldn't be able to sell real estate. In fact, I have found uh, years ago when I was in the title insurance business, I found it really interesting that the market, the interest rates had really gone up very, very high, a lot higher than they are today. And there was this one company at the time, which is no longer around, but it was a very large company called Western National. And they had this brand new agent in there, and she was just selling a lot of real estate. And all the old timers were sitting around kind of scratching their head and you know, saying, how does she do that? Who does she know? And basically, when I got a chance to talk to her, what happened is somebody forgot to tell her that the real estate business wasn't really good right now. She didn't know that. She was just doing those activities that her broker told her to do. She made the phone call, she made the contact, she previewed the property, she made sure she was on top of the financing, she worked a lot of contacts, and she was very successful. In the meantime, the old-timers that had been around a long time who were just trying to convince themselves that the business was falling apart were not making any sales, and here's a brand-new person that she's doing fine. So, again, it's the fact of just doing whatever the successful salespeople do. The next thing that this chapter talked about is enter the broker, what you're really trying to emphasize here is that in practice, and especially in practice, uh, is that you may very well end up wanting to be a real estate broker. And so we talk a little bit about in this area is agency represent, uh, representation. Remember that when you're working with a client, you are their agent. You're representing their interests, whether you're handling the buyer or the seller or both. Remember that if you are a broker, you'll be involved in directing and supervising people and cooperating with other real estate brokers from other companies in order to make sales. Uh, we talked here about, uh, in this chapter here, we talked about getting started in the business. Then we talked about the different types of forms of business ownership. We talked about a sole proprietorship, partnership, corporation, subchapter S corporation, just a lot of different entities and the pros and cons of how you would want to operate as a business. And the last thing was record keeping. Remember that if you are a real estate brokerage company, you are going to be handling from time to time, sometimes on a regular basis, clients' money. And in order to do that, you're going to have to have something called trust fund accounts that, by the way, the Department of Real Estate can come in anytime they want to and audit your accounts, and they can really fine you and raise a lot of cane if you're not keeping track of the current client's current money. Remember, you cannot commingle funds. You can't put your money in with the client's money, period. And then the other thing we talked about, keeping your, all of your records for the transaction for three years, okay? And that means every single solitary piece of paper and copy of everything that you get in a transaction folder, which usually includes things like when you made phone calls, when you showed people properties, all kinds of stuff like that. So that took care of Chapter 1. Chapter 2, <clears throat> chapter two basically dealt with what we call prospecting. And prospecting means, uh, prospecting comes from the old term of, uh, I guess you could say, the gold miner times. What it basically means is that in, uh, when you were a gold miner, what would happen is, is that you would basically, uh, you know, when looking for gold, you had to go through sometimes lots and lots of rock. If you've ever seen the way that they do it on the rivers, they had these... Uh, uh, they take the rock and all, all the dirt and everything that comes out of the river and they pump it through one of these things and they shake it to get, finally find the gold, meaning that you have to sometimes go through a lot of dirt and a lot of rock to find that piece of gold. So prospecting is just a term that we got, if you will, from the old 49er time. But basically what it means is, is that as in any business, especially the real estate business, you want to get people to think enough of you to pick up the phone and call you when they need to buy or sell a home. And the question is, how do you get those people to do that? And so we talked about a lot of different ways. One of the things was the sources of listings for sellers, different ways that you can find sellers. 
We talked about things like farming, in other words, keeping in contact with the community, a neighborhood, sending out letters, letting people know that you have listings for sale in the neighborhood, letting people know that maybe you sold something, letting them know, uh, oh, uh, inviting them to open houses, those kinds of things. The second thing we talked about, open houses. This is one of the areas that I personally feel that it can be a very good opportunity for you to meet potential clients, especially clients that either want to list or sell. And the, co the concept is, is you have to meet them some way. So if you put a for sale sign out and an open house sign out on a Saturday and a Sunday, and I, by the way, I happen to just notice that some of the real successful agents do this week in and week out, every Saturday and Sunday. In fact, I think during this period of time I mentioned one of the agents her name is Joanne Pino. She works for Lion Realtors, and every single solitary weekend she has an open house, Saturday and Sunday without fail. And it's interesting because she gets most of, I think, she, I think either she gets her business from referrals or she gets them from people that she meets at those open houses. The important thing is, is that you know how to conduct the open house correctly, that you get the information from the clients, and especially nowadays I highly recommend that you get from them their email address because once you have their email address it's a way that you can contact them without having to spend the money for the postage so if you want to be able to start building a database or a list of clients that might potentially be interested in buying property or selling property with you keep in mind that every time you collect an email address that's another person that you can let them know about property you're selling or uh, that you're listing for sale or what's happening in the business market very very important uh, same thing with finding buyers. Uh, again, I highly recommend that you really spend some time developing this. I am amazed at um, people that will uh, answer the phone and just straight give you the information and say, that's it, and hang up. You know, The purpose of you having these open houses and you running these ads is for you to meet people, new people, that are interested in buying selling real estate. And taking the time to develop how to do that is very, very important in working with your broker. Okay, and then developing referrals. How do you develop referrals? That's the core way that you get, you know, I don't care if you're a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, or accountant, I don't care what business you're in. You have to have a way of making that telephone ring. Okay, very, very important. Um, then we talk about advertising and promotion. Probably the most important thing that you always want to think about when you're doing advertising, and there are a lot of books written about this, but you want to make sure that the advertising is effective, and you want to take and observe what other people happen to be doing and why they do it. Uh, it's interesting that, for example, the Sacramento Bee nowadays will have some ads in the paper, but you'll see a lot of local newspapers, community newspapers, that fall into a small community area. You know, for example, I live in El Dorado Hills, having a small paper that just reaches the community in the El Dorado Hills or El Dorado area. And when you open those newspapers up, you'll see a lot of ads for properties that are for sale. So I think that that's important, that you take a look at that different type of media and constantly evaluate whether it's doing what you want it to do. It's amazing how sometimes you'll have one ad that'll be a great big ad that you'll spend a lot of money for and find out it doesn't produce any kind of results at all. And then put some teensy-weensy little ad in the back of a church bulletin uh, saying that you happen to be in the real estate business and you're, you're a member. And for whatever, and I'm not saying whether this works or it doesn't, but for some reason that small little ad works and the big ad doesn't do anything for you. So it's kind of important that you have some way of measuring and figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. And don't really listen to where somebody says to you, you have to do it this way. What you always want to be doing is putting something out, testing, seeing if it works, seeing what kind of results, asking your clients, how did you hear about it? How did you hear about the listing? I think that that would be a question I would ask every client after a while. How did you hear about me? How did you learn that I existed? If it happens to be a referral, by the way, make darn sure that if you got that if that person's standing in front of you and ready to look and buy a house, make sure that you contact that person that was a referrer and thank them and say thank you very much for the business. And in fact, let them know. Keep them apprised. People, for whatever, you're going to find out that some people, you may do a great job for them and they maybe will never refer any business to you. You may find out you have another client that you'll do an okay job, or what they, but they think you did a great job and they're what we call in the sales business a center of influence. 
they come into contact with a lot of people, and a lot of people look to them for advice, and you may find out that one person is sending you business on a regular basis. And so you want to let them know and thank them very much for being hel helping you out. Okay, the next thing that we talked about was the listing agreement. The listing agreement, when you're getting ready to sell a piece of property, is the agreement that is actually your employment contract, if you will, with the seller of the property. In other words, when you are getting ready, uh, when you are going to represent a seller to sell their property, you're going to fill out a contract called a listing agreement. And what's really, really important is that you keep in mind, I think the, the most important thing about this entire chapter is how you should really prepare for this interview with the client. I would, I would highly recommend that if once you find out that you are going to go ahead and have an appointment to list a property for sale, that just don't walk in the door without doing some kind of research. Uh, I would highly recommend that you would spend the time, after you know the address of the property, to go out and at least come up with a list of properties that have sold recently and that are also in the market that are in the area where the property happens to be located. So you can sit down and talk to the client about that. That's one thing. The second thing that I would highly recommend is that you contact the title insurance company. For example, we work with, that helps our internship class, financial title company. Contacting them, contacting the customer service. Getting a copy of things like the grant deed to make sure who actually owns the property. The deed of trust to find out who they maybe owe money to. Find out and get a copy of the plat map so you know the dimensions of the lot. Uh, the, pars uh, the, pars the assessor's parcel list so you know the assessor's parcel number. Getting all of that information is very, very important in preparing for the interview. Going to the interview and making sure you have all the right tools. Make sure you have the camera, the tape measure, the listing forms. All of the documents that you need. And be prepared to show them what you and your company have done in the past and are planning to do in the future in order to market and sell their home. Remember, when people most of the time are getting ready to sell their home, they're looking to look to get on the stick and move it. In other words, price it correctly, make it look the best they possibly can, get it on the market and get it sold for the highest and the best price they can as possible so they can get on, move on and buy their next home. So listing and preparing for that listing appointment is very, very important. I think it's one of the most critical and crucial things and then once you get the listing, I think it's really important that you service it correctly. In other words, let the client know, you know, if there has been agents by, ask, your, ask your, uh, the people that own the house, ask them to collect that, the uh, broker's business cards, call those other brokers, find out what's been going on. Did their clients like the property, yes or no? Did they think it was priced right? How did it look? It really helps getting that other feedback, especially if you have something where you need to have the clients make some physical changes to the property to help market it better. One of the things that we're going to be doing in the future is doing a show on uh, how to stage a home. And one of the important things is, is, is knowing how to set the home up to make it look the most attractive you possibly can from the time the people actually drive up to the front of the house till when they walk in and how it looks, making sure it's not cluttered, that it looks clean and it looks neat. So in order for you to get people to do that sometimes, you may actually have to get the other broker's business cards and say, you know, uh, you know, we did have, you know, uh, Pat Hogarty come in from ABC Realtors, and, you know, he said his clients kind of liked the place, but, you know, they said it looked a little bit dark, and maybe it needed a coat of paint. You know, as I've told other students of mine, there's a couple things that you have to keep in mind with us as an American society. We're sort of unique. The first thing is we're terrible negotiators. Okay, so that's why it's important to always price things at a price that's competitive that's going to sell. A lot of times people do not, I don't know why, but in this society do not want to make an offer that they think they're going to get rejected. So you want to make sure you price it correctly. Number two is people, a lot of times, the vast majority of the people, I'm sorry to say, can't see beyond, can't see beyond what's in the box. In other words, if the house needs a coat of paint, they, you know, a coat of paint is not that expensive. You know, a few hundred dollars in a weekend you can, and a garden hose and a dustpan and a broom, you can make just about anything look really good, but people don't think beyond that. So you have to put things in, so you have to present things in such a way that it looks good to people. So it's important a lot of times, so maybe you're going to use those influences from what other people say that the client needs to do something with their house in order to get it up to speed to sell it. 
But listing appointment is very, very important. Uh, or a listing. The next thing that we talked about was something we broke down the listing agreement. I'm going to kind of zoom out of here. We're going to have to because this is kind of uh, big. But we spent quite a bit of time in breaking down what was actually talked about in doing, you know, the, um, the broker's role in the, um, I'm sorry, let me just flip back here. Okay, listing agreement. And uh, we talked about, we broke down the listing agreement. We talked about all of the different components and parts of the listing agreement. Remember that you are really going to have to be very good at explaining this to your clients. If you really think about it for a minute, you know, mo think about any time that you've ever bought or sold something. Think about your personal attention span. Think about attention spans of other people that you know. To have people sit down and spend four, five, six hours on a particular activity is very, very difficult to do. I would say most of the time a listing appointment is going to last maybe a couple hours, maybe three hours at the most, and that might be pushing it because people are going to be tired. They're not going to be able to pay their attention span, meaning they're going to focus their attention. It's going to be difficult after that. So remember, you're going to have to be pretty adept at explaining what this listing agreement is, what the terms are, explaining it in layman's terms that they can understand what it means in such a way that they finally will read it and they will be able to understand it and sign, sign off on it. There's a lot of activities you're going to do during this listing time. You're going to be talking about the, the sales price. You're going to be talking about staging the home for sale. You're going to be telling the people about the fact that other people are going to be coming in and looking for the house, looking at the house. You're going to be talking about things about different types of financing terms, how the offer process is going to work, escrows, uh, all kinds of things. So there's a lot of things you have to think about in preparing for that interview. And two to three hours at the most is about the maximum amount of time that most people can focus their attention. So that's why it's important that you think about that and think about the various kinds of forms and tools you're going to be using and being able to explain them. The next chapter dealt with selling, and it talked about, if I remember some a uh, uh, couple things, it talked about the first part about shopping for a home. Suffice it to say that I think that one of the most important things that anybody that is getting ready to buy a house is that they realistically need to ask themselves, should I really buy a house? I think that's the first thing that they should really ask. I think if you go to a lot of websites like the Jenny May website, the FHA website, I think the VA website, there's a number of websites that will go through and talk and have you fill out some things that will talk about the advantages and disadvantages of buying versus renting. And I think most clients really need to think about that before they actually go out and get ready to buy. Remember. There's a lot of advantages to buying real estate. You know, we build equity. We have pride of ownership. We actually, because we're building equity, we start building an estate. There's a lot of different things. But also remember, on the other hand, that at least currently today, your house payments, your client's house payments are going to be substantially higher than they would if they rented the same house. So it's not uncommon for us to have two houses right next door to each other one of them may have payments of $2,500 a month plus things such as property taxes, insurance, and some other things, and the rental house right next door to it might be only renting for $1,500 a month. So keep, and keep in mind that some people, some people maybe shouldn't be owning a house. Maybe they should just continue to rent. You know, maybe they don't make enough income to buy a house. Buying a house, you know, all of a sudden when you buy a house, one of the things that happens is you remove the landlord. You're now responsible for fixing all those things that break. You can't call the landlord up anymore. Uh, so I think th having clients think about the advantages and the disadvantages and you understanding the advantages and disadvantages of home ownership is very, very important. And there are a lot of our friends that should be better off renting than buying. Just let me say that. It's very important that you think about that. Um, they talked about why buyers buy. There's a lot of different reasons why people buy real estate, as I mentioned. You know, I mean, pride of ownership, building equity in their estate, you know, their houses, their kingdom, whatever it happens to be. They talked about different types of techniques of selling. Basically, what they're doing here is they taught, broke this down, which you normally would do is in what we call face-to-face -face communications, letter communications, and telephone communications. Just remember, whenever you talk to a client, in fact, one of the things that's always amazed me is how people can be completely different in those three modes of communication. 
For example, I have a very, very good friend of mine that if I get him on the phone and talk to him, he can be on the phone with me for an hour solidly talking. When I meet with him face to face, he doesn't do a lot of talking. I do a lot of talking. So the point is, is that there are a lot of times where sometimes when you're talking face to face with people, you have an opportunity to see their reaction how they're acting, what their body language is like. Are they becoming defensive? Are they looking directly at you? Do they look bored? Uh, we can't see on the other end of the telephone somebody that's drumming their fingers and going, God, when is Pat going to show up, uh, shut up, you know? We can't see that, but we can personally, one-on-one. -on -one. Also, remember, it's harder for clients to say no to you face-to-face, -face. okay? It's very hard. The second way, letter communication is one way. Letter communications, you have no idea what people are saying on the other end. You don't see what they're reacting is. And it's very easy, by the way, to just say in a letter, never mind, I'm not interested. You know, you have no feedback. It's a way for a client to turn you off. In fact, some people will try to get rid of a salesperson by just sending them a letter and saying, thank you very much for contacting me. I'm not interested. Okay, but you have no two-way communication. The third way is by telephone. And again, you're still not seeing them face-to-face, -face, but in today's, uh, uh, with the cost of uh, gas today, you know, it may, we may end up where we're having to do a lot of business via the telephone and via Internet in order to get by an email because of the fact of, you know, the cost of getting around is becoming very expensive. So remember, there's different techniques in that. Okay. Then they talked about the sales process, the steps in selling, which I would ha hopefully that you would recommend that you would go back through that. And then finally, closing techniques. Closing techniques is just the fact of bringing the, the concept to conclusion. You know, the idea is that you've shown somebody a property, you've shown them a listing, you've talked about listing, for example, you get all done, you explain everything, and then finally the last thing is you say, Mr. Jones... If I can have you write your name here or sign here, and then when you do that, shut up, okay? Don't say a word. Let the client, because the client is going to be going through some thought process. Sometimes they may say, oh, great, and sign. Sometimes they may sit there and sit there and sit there. I've had people tell me that they've sat in a room with people and gone on for 10 and 15 minutes and sometimes 20 minutes with the client looking at them and looking at the paper and looking at them and shuffling back through, and never say a word and then finally picking up the pen and signing the paperwork because they have to do that. Remember, people are different. Okay. We talked on the next chapter. Chapter 6 was about something called the purchase offer. Okay. Purchase offer, remember, is the form that is filled out when you are getting ready and representing a buyer to purchase a piece of real estate. Remember, this document, again, just like the listing agreement, is a very, very complex legal document that takes a lot of explanation to the client. Not to explain it to make it so complicated that they're never going to make a decision, but it's a very complex document. Remember, it's this document that's going to specify you and your client together. You're going to take your client's wishes, your buyer, and you're going to specify under what terms the client's going to buy the, the property. For example, you know, the client may very well come back and, you know, say, I want to buy this house. The, I, the price I want to pay is $350,000. I want to get a brand new loan. I want to have, uh, I don't want that new loan to ex exceed 8% interest on a 30-year amortization schedule. Um, I want to, um, I want to, I don't want to pay any more than two points for it. You know, these are all the terms that they're going to specify. I want a termite inspection done. I want a home inspection done. I want, you know, I want all these things done. I'll pay half the escrow uh, fees. I want the seller to pay the other half of the fees. I want to be able to close the entire transaction in 60 days. You know, I want to be able to move in, you know, on this day. All those things are specified in the purchase offer. Also in the purchase offer are going to be things like what happens if you have a disagreement. Okay, how are you going to resolve that? How are you going to mediate it? How are you going to litigate it? How are you going to arbitrate it? Whatever that happens to be, that's in the purchase offer. So being familiar with that becomes very, very important. Uh, then we talked about something called additional forms. If you want to re remember, there's a, this is the area of the chapter in which we have a lot of uh, a matrix of all sorts of additional forms you can use. And the reason why you want to become familiar with those forms is, remember, Many, many, many years ago, if I was a real estate agent, I probably had to carry around a loose-leaf binder with a whole bunch of uh, paragraphs of additional sentences that I could add to, to an offer. 
okay? And, uh, and after a while, that becomes very cumbersome. There's two things that happen. If I have to continuously handwrite these things out, I may make a mistake. And remember, it may get down to the fact that the person that's going to find out I made a mistake and I'm going to end up having to pay for that is going to be the judge that's going to adjudicate the case. So what happens is, is the California Association of Realtors, over a number of years, has collected this information and has created these additional forms. And the idea behind these forms is that you pick the form up if the, if the particular situation arises. For example, if you want to make a counteroffer. In other words, somebody offers something to you, as, uh, if, you're the listing, um, if you're the person that's selling the property, you get an offer from somebody, and the offer's okay except for a couple things, and you want to make an offer back to them, it's called a counteroffer. That form is in the book, okay? And I have a question from the gentleman in the back. Yes, let's, let's say that the, um, the buyer uh, wanted no more than an 8% interest rate okay. for 30-year um, amortization. What control do I have over that? What, what can I do about that? I had to say, okay, first of all, the question I have to ask you, are you the listing agent? Or are, you the, are you the person that's trying to sell the property or the person that's trying to buy the property? I am I'm representing the one who's trying to buy the property okay. on the purchase offer. The purchase offer. The reason why you want to specify that percentage is for this reason. I'll tell you the pros and cons of both sides. This was a question I had last night. If you're the buyer, what you want to do is you want to say to them, you know, I, you know, let me just sort of give you the scenario. I already sat down, or I, you know, my wife and I have sat down. We've already discussed what we can pay on a monthly basis without killing ourselves what we can afford to buy. We know that after we've sat down with a loan counselor, you know, a mortgage, a mortgage broker or mortgage banker, and they've told us what we could qualify for, and we, they told us we could qualify for, say, $300,000. They did the schedule out, and they told us that was based on 8%. And we know we figured it out, and that was about the max we could go to. That's about what we could qualify for. If we tried to push beyond that limit, we were going to find out we couldn't really get a loan for that amount of money. Okay. Also, the points become very critical because of the fact that, you know, the points are going to come from someplace. They're either going to come out of my own pocket and I'm going to have to pay them, which is going to be additional fees I'm going to have to pay, or they're going to have to be financed as part of the loan, which is going to take away from how much money I have as purchasing power. The other thing that, as far as the 30 years goes, what's important about that is it tells me what my amortization schedule is. Okay. It tells me that those payments are fixed for 30 years or their adjustable rate for, you know, for 30 years, but they get, can be redone in five years. The point is, is that I'm setting the baseline. I'm saying that's what I can afford. If I can't, if I can't get a loan for that amount of money, I, I, Pat Hogarty, can't afford to purchase that. I'm kidding myself if I do. That's the advantage to you as the buyer. It gives you a chance to say, I, could, I was not able to obtain that loan under those conditions, and therefore I can't buy the property. Please give me my money back. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to probably make an offer on a property that costs me less amount of money. Okay, that would be why. On the seller's side, the reason why the seller, why it's important to the seller is because that's a contingency, what we call a contingency. And the seller is, is knowing once they sign that, that, oh, by the way, this, this buyer has to get a loan and it can't exceed 8%. And I, as the seller, have to make a decision. Do I want to take my house off the market while this person fools around and tries to find a loan? Or do I want to say to them, thank you very much. I really appreciate that you have an interest in my property. Why don't you do this before I actually accept an offer from you? Or I might even say this in the form of a counteroffer back, that the buyer is to produce a letter of some kind of a document from a mortgage lender that says this person is qualified to buy the property. Okay? So I need to do that. Keep in mind one thing, though, out of all said and done. Those letters from lenders can be full of a lot of Swiss cheese, a lot of holes. Okay? In other words, you don't really know whether a person is fully qualified to buy a property until you have whatever the requirements are that the lender has. In other words, the pay stubs, maybe income tax statements, maybe verification of credit rating, verification of bank accounts, a lot of different stuff. So it's almost like what you're getting from a lender is a preliminary okay is what you're getting from them. Okay? Keep that in mind. Good question, though. The next thing that we talked about... And some of the additional forms are in there. Remember, we have lease forms, we have counteroffers, we have disclosure statements. The concept is, is there's a lot of forms in there that you can utilize that will help you 
finish the transaction just by maybe just having to check a box and put in a date or by maybe putting in a small amount of information which means that you're not really dependent upon you know somebody's already done the legal work if you will for you ahead of time also remember too a lot of these forms once you become a licensed real estate agent and you've joined the local association of realtors one of the things that you're going to have available to you as part of your dues paying is something called a computer program called WinForms. And what WinForms does is it has all of those forms currently all electronically available that you fill out on the computer and be able to print them out. And what's really nice about them is that you establish the form by establishing the client. So you put in the person's name, address, and all that other stuff, and then if you need that form and get ready to fill it out, you fill it out on your laptop, print it out, and it already has all of that basic information, such as their name, address, whatever happens, whatever would appear on all the different forms. Very important. That's why a lot of agents nowadays are having a laptop, and in a lot of cases a portable printer, because that means that they can take all the forms with them wherever they happen to go and be able to print them out. It's a lot easier than it is to go out and have a whole box of these different types of forms in the back of your car. Especially nowadays with gas, you may find out that if you're in the real estate, <laughs> this is silly, but you may find out that you're having to make, have a smaller car, and when you get a smaller car, you don't have any more room to put all this extra stuff in it, you know. Actually, you, you know, unless you're carrying people around and showing them property, you could practically do your real estate business off the back of a motorcycle nowadays. If you have a laptop and a portable printer, you know, and a tape measure and a couple other things, you put them in your saddlebags in the back and do all your business in the back, you know, from the back of your, uh, your motorcycle. And we may be forced to do that with the price of gases going the way it is. The next thing we talked about was something called finance. Remember, financing is very, very important. It's a whole topic onto its own. Remember that you can break down financing into basically three different areas. There's conventional financing, which means that you go to a lender such as Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, 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 Washington Mutual, uh, Countrywide Funding. And you go to them and you apply for a loan, and that loan is not uh, uh, insured or guaranteed by any government organization, just a straight loan. Okay, those loans typically require you to put at least 20% or more down payment. If you put less than 20%, you're going to have to have, or your client will have to pay something called PMI, which is private mortgage insurance. On the other hand, we have government lending programs such as FHA, VA, CalVet, and then we have special programs for people that are buying their first homes, for example, through uh, the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency, or we can find out about those through when we talked about the Home Loan Counseling Center, which is on the first floor where the uh, Sacramento Association of Realtors is located, that'll have special programs to help people out of buying their first house. But the concept is, is real estate financing is very, very, very important part. We're buying do high dollar ticket, uh, high cost items is what real estate is and in most cases we do not have that large amount of money in the in our back pocket and we're going to have to borrow it and your clients going to have to borrow it so knowing what those programs are where they're located and how they're available is very important and knowing at least one really good really really good uh, loan person is very important very I would work very hard at finding myself a mortgage banker or broker that really knows what they're doing, that really works well with clients, that I'm able to pick the phone up and say, hi, I just had a client walk in my office, uh, uh, you know, 10 minutes ago, and they look to me like uh, they're really interested in buying a house, and I need to be able to find out if they're able to get a loan. Could you help them and pin them on the phone, and they can work with them? And you know that they're going to work really well with them. Very important person for you to know. Chapter 9 talked about escrow. Remember that once we have an accepted offer from a client, what's going to end up happening is that we will call a, and if we're in Northern California, we're going to call a title insurance company. Remember that title and escrow are together in Northern California. In Southern California, we have, they're separate. We have escrow companies and then title insurance companies. But remember the most important part about an escrow company is that these are the people that are going to take that initial accepted purchase offer agreement and they are going to make sure that all of the all of the contingencies all of the parts of the contract are completed totally 
before they give anybody else money, they pay, make any payouts, they record before they close the transaction, before they record any documents. So in other words, they're going to keep track if uh, the purchase offer says something like that the client needs to have a termite inspection, they're not going to pay any money until that termite inspection is done and the repair work is done. They're going to make sure that an appraisal comes in. They're going to make sure that they get loan payoffs from existing lenders. They're going to make sure that they have loan documents from the new lenders. They're going to make sure that they're properly filled out. The escrow officer is the person that's going to sit your clients down. They're going to have explain all of these documents to your clients, usually near the end of the deal, almost to the point maybe a few days before the clients, the buyers, actually take possession of the house. They're going to sit down, have them sign all the documents, explain them all to them, notarize them, and then tell their title insurance part of their company to record all those documents. One of the things I really want to emphasize here, it's very important that you have and develop another person, a very good relationship with an escrow officer, very important, uh, to help you out. Uh, that, and remember, it's a two-way street. This is a person that you're going to feel totally confident with recommending them to handle the transaction, any transaction that you may have. But this is also a person that you may call up and say, you know, I have a question. I have, I want to know, I've worked really hard on this deal, and I want to know, am I, am I calculating all these escrow and title fees correctly? And they're able to help you. So it's very, very important that you know a very good escrow and title insurance person. So that took care of Chapter 9. Chapter 10 dealt with something called taxation. The bottom line of the taxation that I kind of want to emphasize, and I know I'm moving a little bit fast now because we're getting close to the end of the show. Remember that we talked about different types of taxes. One of the taxes that every property has, if it happens to be owned by a, a corporation or a private individual, is called property taxes. We talked during those shows about something called Proposition 13, about the fact that normally the baseline of property taxes is usually 1% of the sales price of the house. We talked about the fact of people, if they own and occupy a house, can get something called a homeowner's exemption, which typically, by the way, will save them about $70 a year in property taxes. We also talked about some special assessments. Remember, special assessments are assessments that are created that are money that is paid in addition to the normal property taxes. And then probably the most important, not in most, there's no such thing as the most important thing, but remember that whenever you get ready to sell a property, that there is going to possibly be some kind of income tax consequence. What you need to know as a real estate agent is the fact of being able to tell a client, look at them and say, listen, if they have a tax question, they need to sit down with their tax person, their expert, and they need to find out if there are going to be any tax consequences on the sale of their property. So, for example, if the house happens to be an owner-occupied and you've lived in it for the last two of the five years, both, all the people that are on the deed have lived there and they want to get that tax exemption like a husband and wife, then the tax exemption for them is $500,000 currently today if it is a... Um, if both of the men have been married for two or have lived in the house for two years or longer. If it's a single in individual, make sure that it's, they understand that they're only going to get a $250,000 exemption. And the calculation of whether there's a tax consequence or not is something that they should sit down and spend the money if they're in question with their tax advisor and have their tax advisor come back and say, I've done the calculation and there is no consequence or I have done it and there is a consequence and what that happens to be. Also realize that there's a difference between whether the property is an income-producing piece of property like a rental or if it happens to be a primary residence where they live. So that was another thing we talked about in taxes. Chapter 11, uh, we talked about investing, and we're getting really close to the end now. Uh, investing, all we were really trying to do in this particular case is to make you aware of the fact, at least the way I kind of looked at it, is that you may very well have clients that are going to be buying property that are not going to be buying it with the intent to live there. They're going to be buying it with the intent to invest their money. So these types of people might be buying something for as simple as buying a house, fixing it up, and selling it again. Or they may be in the process of buying it, fixing it up, or buying it and holding it for a period of time, several years, and then selling it later on in the future. Remember, when we're talking about investing in real estate, we can be talking about something as small 
as a single-family house or a condominium, or we can be talking about something like a shopping center, an office building, uh, a motel, a hotel, a mobile home park, any of those things. And remember that if you're in real estate and you're talking about investment real estate, you're actually talking about developing a group of people that are going to like what you do well enough that are continuously going to be working with you on a regular basis. And because of that, you're going to be probably doing things a little bit differently. They may be saying, listen, if you ever run across you know, an apartment house that's for sale, let me know about it. So you're going to be finding that these are people that are actively involved in buying and selling real estate on a regular basis, and they're going to be looking to you to po possibly helping them find property to invest in. Okay, so that's the kind of thing that you have to think about there. Then I think last week, right before we ended, we talked about other ways that you can make money in real estate. And one of the things that we talked about was by selling businesses. I spent quite a bit of time talking about the sale of a business, rem remembering the fact that once you have your real estate license, you can list and sell things like hardware stores, uh, donut shops, coffee shops, ice cream parlors, uh, uh, hairdressing places, um, it can go on and on, auto parts, car repair, whatever. The important thing to think about a business when you're buying and selling, and it does take a great deal of expertise in that area, an area where you may want to focus, is remember you have three types of property you're going to be dealing with when you sell a business. You're going to be dealing with, first of all, you may have a lease where you're going to have to work and deal with a lease that's existing or it has to be renegotiated, or you may have real estate that you have to sell. The second thing is you may very well have personal property that had to be sold along with the business. So, for example, if it's a restaurant, you're going to be not only selling the real estate, but you may be selling the tables that people sit at, the ovens, the fryers, the, uh, you know, the ice boxes, the refrigerators. All those things are going to be sold with the business. That's a personal property. And the third thing, and probably the most difficult thing you're going to be dealing with, is something called goodwill. And for that, you're going to be looking at things like the uh, financial statements, how much income they produce, from a historical basis for a number of years, how reliable that income is, and that's really why a lot of people are going to be buying the business. If you really look at it, maybe the personal uh, furniture is really not worth that much, but the idea is what, what's a value is those people are going to show up at that door every day and buy something from that business. That's where the value happens to be. So that was one of the ways we talked about making money in this business. Some of the other things that we talked about were things like you could be working on uh, selling things like mobile homes, you could be doing things uh, such as, um, we talked about the difference between a mobile home dealer versus a real estate broker. Uh, we talked about uh, manufactured homes. We talked about, you know, uh, about how they're becoming more and more in vogue than they have in the past because of the cost of construction. It's a lot cheaper nowadays to turn around and build at least portions of a new home in some kind of a factory environment under some kind of controlled conditions so that you don't have the waste of materials and then finally turn around and be able to deliver that to the site and put it up on the site becomes very very important. Uh, I did mention to you that not that my home is a manufactured home but when they built my house a lot of the components is, such as you know the, the, uh, the, uh, the roof, the rafters, the walls were pre-constructed at a lumber yard and then delivered to the site. And it always amazed me about the fact of how, um, how little waste there was because, you know, there weren't people sawing two-by-fours there. You know, they were actually just putting the house together. Um, so that pretty much takes us up to where we are right now. I want to remind you that the next time when you come in for the uh, exam, when you come in for the exam, remember you're going to be bringing your business plan with you. Uh, very, very important. That'll be when you'll be turning it in. And with that, I want to thank you very much for coming and watching the show. And I will see you probably the next time. And we'll be moving on to, uh, I think it's property management. Thank you again. Bye-bye.